Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. And we will be using that slogan today. Um, it's having its moment in the sun. Um, <laughs> we are here with the full crew. Myself, Jamie Peck. I'm Sean, Sean KB. And Andy's here as well. And we are here with not one but two guests, Arturo and Shaman, um, friends of the show, theorizers of the revolution. Um, hi, guys. How you doing today? Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your, uh, your, your revolutionary media project that you've been doing? Arturo, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, my name By is which Arturo. I mean writing cool articles. Sorry, continue. Yeah. No, thank you. We definitely appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I'm just a Philly-based, you know, insurrectionary communist type person. Also New York City-based sometimes. I don't really know what else to say about myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's probably the same. I mean, I live in New York. Uh, uh, and I uh, am, a, you know, communist, anarchist, into insurrectionary politics, uh, and I'm just madly inspired and uh, devoted to the movement. Look forward to the conversation today. Thanks for having us. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and we're going to put links to a bunch of your writing that we're going to be referring to on the show today in the episode description so everybody can read it. So um, I want to start with a big question, all right? Maybe we'll circle back to it at the end. Um, so I really enjoyed your writing on the George Floyd Rebellion. Uh, and it's clear that you believe that the uprising for Black lives, as I've come to think of it, uh, really has the potential to develop into a proletarian revolution against white supremacy, capitalism, and the state as well, um, particularly the more, shall we say, militant tactics like uh, looting, rioting, smashing up cop cars, et cetera, et cetera, that you seem to focus on a lot. So uh, where do you see this potential? And, you know, in 30 seconds or less, can you sketch out your theory of change or how this you know, happens, ha happens to become a revolution? Hmm. <laughs> wow. You want to go? You want to go for that, Shimon? Sure. Uh, Thirty. No one's giving me thirty seconds of plenty of time. Look, uh, <laughs> take ninety or one hundred and twenty seconds. It's fine. <laughs> it's all good. No, no. I mean, the soundbite for me is we've entered a dynamic where the proletariat is fighting um, the state. It's, it's, it's redistributing wealth by looting in the proletarian way. All other forms of redistribution, in my humble opinion, are kind of against the proletariat because the task of revolution is for the proletariat to do it itself and not have middle-class people give it charity or not have middle-class people do nice little policies called defund or green new deal or all those cute little names, but the proletariat through its own, own violence, creativity, power, self-organization is the class that'll defeat the system and usher in a new and better world. That's my 30-second pitch. <laughs> wow. You know, I was just joking about 30 seconds or less, but you did a real Nailed good job it. with that. You had, you, I think you had six seconds left if you wanted to go over the complex relationship between the lump and proletariat and the proletariat. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can flesh that out through the course of the episode. Yeah. Um, we're, we're focusing, uh, for obvious reasons on the joy, uh, the George Floyd, I almost said joyed the George Floyd rebellion. 
Uh, I guess a, an opening question on that would be, how was this particular insurrection we saw last year different from previous riots, whether isolated ones like we saw in L.A. in 1992 or even the national strike wave of, uh, I'm sorry, national wave of unrest after MLK was assassinated in uh, 1968? Uh, what's different about this? Um, well, uh, I mean, you know, just in terms of like, property damage this is unprecedented it was like more than it was like two billion dollars in in property damage that was caused right so that's already but i mean the the main thing that that stands out for me i mean besides the scale of destruction and the geographic reach which i I think is unprecedented is also just the the multiracial character of the uprising and you know, white people have participated and like Latinx people, indigenous people have fought together with like the black proletariat before, but I think that it, it has not happened on this scale. And also the the counterinsurgency has included, you know, black mayors and police chiefs and cops and even NGOs, you know, that I think is also unprecedented. So that to me is the main yeah, and, and just to build off that. Oh, I'm sorry, Arturo. No, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the multi the, the moment the multiracialism is happening is particularly unique. It's after 40 to 50 years or so of neoliberalism, and another way to think about neoliberalism, right? Lots of people have thought about it in terms of the attack on the black proletariat or the Latinx proletariat, so on. But it's also been an attack on the white proletariat for several decades now. And what we're seeing is kind of, you know, the fruition of that attack has pushed large numbers of white proletarians into the struggle, too, which I think from Arturo and I's perspective is, you know, to have a multiracial front of attack against capitalism, the state, and so on is very important because no specific section of the class alone can defeat the system. If it fights alone, it's very clear to us, it will lose. And so what's unique, you know, is I think as Arturo pointed out, how widespread it is, although in the 1960s, it was also very widespread in a geographical sense, lots of small cities also participated, but also how multiracial it's been, which isn't to say that other riots, including the LA 92 riot, was not multiracial, because that was a profoundly right multiracial riot, if you look at the arrest records and things of that sort, but that's a whole other conversation of how riots get always read as Black riots, even though oftentimes um, they tend to have other racialized groups participating in it. But that's important for us to think about. So I think just the the trajectory of this riot and the period that this riot in is pretty different than it was in 92 uh, or what it was in 67, 68. You mentioned the, the geographic spread of the rebellion. And one thing that I found interesting in your piece, uh, Fire on Main Street, was you talked about this dynamic between small cities like Kenosha and Rochester on the one hand, and the large uh, cities like Minneapolis and New York on the other. Um, These smaller cities are places where there's not much of a quote-unquote left that exists, and yet there were some of the most... um, there, there were this kindling, you know, for this rebellion. So what does that tell us, uh, this relationship between small cities and big cities and the geographic spread of the struggle? What does it tell us about not just the rebellion itself, but the material geography of the United States? 
we uh, talked about it in that piece, but uh, I mean, one thing is that jobs are increasingly shifting towards the peripheries of the major cities and that the city, the big major cities are being gentrified and becoming hubs of white collar uh, jobs. And then the more blue collar jobs uh, are starting to shift towards the suburbs and like smaller satellite cities. So, I mean, that's part of it. Also, you know, the, the housing question where it's becoming more expensive to live in these big cities. Um, but also this experience of, of the uprising, I think, forced us to look at history and, and think about things in a way that we had not realized was the case. So there was all these riots and rebellions that happened in suburbs and small cities in the 60s too, and also like throughout the 70s and 80s that we just didn't even realize happened. So um, it's not even necessarily like a new, a completely new phenomenon either. It almost like revealed a geography of struggle that was already there in a way. And now we're just like trying to make sense of it. So you write um, very convincingly in this piece uh, about why uh, people from the organized left, militants, whatever you want to call us, uh, need to spread out from big cities like New York and Oakland and, you know, kind of infiltrate the smaller cities and try to participate in whatever's going on there or help the, get the ball rolling. Um, why is this a strategic move um, and how can insurgents do this, uh, coordinate across various localities, make make connections in smaller cities where they might not know anybody, um, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we want to think about what is power, right. I mean, we just have this, uh, uh, spectacular display of maybe a certain type of symbolic power on January 6th where, you know, the, the capital of world empire was stormed and all those type of things. But the interesting thing is once everyone was inside, in many ways, all they found was like an empty building, right? Uh, if you wanted to eat, you still had to call and order your pizza hut. If you wanted water, you, know, you had to get water from somewhere. So the means of reproducing life in many ways cannot be located in one building, let alone one specific city. And when I say means of reproducing life, I mean, you know, you, you could broadly think about it in terms of, human life. Um, but right now under capitalism, I'm particularly concerned about proletarian life, uh, you know, and, and to imagine a world where everyone talks about a world without capitalism, a world without, well, some people talk about a world without a state, right? And for those of us who are interested in those worlds, we need to be able to materially reproduce uh, our ability to live. And that requires having an understanding of geography that's bigger than just New York City. Just if we think about where New York City gets its water from, right, or its electricity from, or all those, vi or its food, right? I mean, we learned in our research that New York City should be obvious to everyone, is not food sustained. It will not survive many days if it doesn't have food being shipped in from all over, not only the Hudson River Valley, but in fact, all over the world. The Hudson River Valley, in fact, does not create an of food to feed all the New Yorkers. So if you're interested in concepts like the commune, right, a New York City commune, if that's a horizon you're interested in, right, with, with no police, no racism, no misogyny, no state, then we have to start thinking about something like 
well, how do we get our food? And small cities are jumping pads and doorways or entryways into all these type of questions because many of the logistical questions, like we're fascinated by Louisville. It's a huge, it's a huge logistics hub for, you know, um, UPS. Um, it's a huge logistics hub for trucking. So if you want to imagine a world where we can do these things, you have to have comrades and people and allies or accomplices, whatever you want to call it, in these places. Or otherwise, we'll find out even in New York City or Chicago, we are really, we, we don't have the means to have clean water on our own or, or clean energy or those type of things. And so our political horizon will always be trapped within capitalism because it's under capitalist social relations that these things happen now. So if we want to break out of that, I think, you know, we need to have um, organizing and real struggles in these other places where these nodes of power exist. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, um, because I think you are, you know, very rightfully concerned with organizing around the point of production, because that's how we get the materials to reproduce life from day to day. But um, you're very critical of unions. And I think it's sort of been my view uh, all along that maybe the primary task of this uh, of this movement is to connect up with organizing at the point of production, whether that's through unions, which are, you know, the pre-existing vehicle right now for labor organizing or something else like you write in your theses on the George Floyd rebellion. I'm going to quote you now. Uh, (laughs) Considering the low unionization rates, many workplace struggles will be chaotic, explosive and unmediated by unions or any other kind of official organization. Unions will come in and attempt to control them and co-opt them. Can the struggles in the workplace feed back into the struggles in the streets? If they do, we will enter a new phase of struggle. So um, in your view, what's the role of organizing at the point of production and why do you think the unions are such a bad vehicle for these tasks? Um, Because I feel like a lot of people are saying, well, what what the fuck else are we supposed to do? What else do we have? You wanna go first, Arturo, you want me to go first? you, you go ahead, Shimon. You, you, that, yeah, I'll, I'll let you have the difficult question. <laughs> Thanks. That's very generous of you. <laughs> awesome. Um, look, I mean, there's a long tradition of what you might call ultra-left thinking around the union question. You can point it in different uh, thinkers. I mean, there's CLR James and Grace Lee Boggs and Marty Glaberman and Ryan Dinovskaya in the U.S. scene that started to look at unions by the 1940s and 50s as structurally integrated into the very system of capitalism and bizarrely the main forces that discipline proletarians themselves. And so what we are interested in is what are the 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 forms of organization and that's why we're not particularly we're not loyal to union as the form so what are the forms of organization that unleash proletarian power and so to me and i think arturo what that looks like is it's our fundamental starting point is proletarians have to do this not organizers not uh, ngo activists and anything that gets in the way and so in, in that sense we're not interested in legal gains we're not interested in nlrb uh, negotiations and all those kind of things the the horizon especially in the context this is to me that what makes this urgent is if everyone says global warming and all this stuff is going to destroy the earth and humanity i'm like we need like basically like 
immediate proletarian action to resolve the most fundamental questions on the planet. And unions seem to be, if you look at what they've been done around the question of global warming and, and climate change, just don't seem to have a, a global enough perspective. And so if we're going to do workplace organizing, which I think is you know, it's been tried for a long time. And I think we got to think about how to do that without becoming union bureaucrats, without becoming trapped in a unionist paradigm, uh, and instead be geared towards, just like I think the riots, how does this cohere proletarian power? And to me, one of the things which you might have noticed in this, the fires burning um, on Main Street essay is that we're very critical of basically how... You, you know, what the big cities have done, have they're, they're the main engines of growth in the country, a particular type of growth, which we can talk about. And at the same time, they've attracted a certain type of activist, right, around the country, which we think are detrimental to proletarian power. Um, and that type of left milieu is largely, I think, you know, uh, to be gentle about it stands in the way. And, and, and it oftentimes it presents itself as progressive and radical and an ally. But to us, what we saw this summer and what's driving it in the immediate sense is the riots were driven by the proletariat. Everyone else followed it. And when the middle classes intervened, when activists intervened, you know, I don't care who they are, they were in the way of the proletariat escalating and cohering and fighting. And that to me, you know, we're using the George Floyd uprising as our teacher, as our guide, um, as a way to clear out the dust of the American left, as a way to clear out our own intellectual cobwebs. And what it reveals is some really uncomfortable truths that, you know, don't make us feel good. We're part of this. I mean, we've lived in New York City and Philadelphia and all these big cities and use the proletariat to do kind of the most intensive interrogation of have my, has my activity advanced proletarian power or have I been blocking proletarian power? And the evidence is most of the work we do blocks proletarian power. And that should be shocking to everyone who's listening right now. So that, that's how we navigate the union and workplace organizing question. Yeah, yeah. I would, yeah, I'd say like, we're like, it's not, the point isn't to be anti-union. Uh, I mean, it's because I mean, there's, there's ways that, unions are a product of you know proletarian self-activity and proletarian power but then you know what we're criticizing is the way that unions mediate that self-activity and recuperate re recuperate it into the logic of capital which is what we've seen time and time again throughout history yeah. so how then do you think that the movement in the streets should connect up with um organizing in you know the places where they make the food and all of the things that we need i'm trying to use less jargon here i said organizing at the point of production earlier now i'm mixing it up <laughs> um but like how because it seems like it's obviously really important right that is the stuff that runs society so how do we connect up the movement in the streets with um the ability to you know control the flow of goods to people yeah i mean that's like you know, the million dollar question. Uh, I don't know if there's a simple answer to that question, but uh, I think, you know, the starting point is just the fact that, you know, a lot of the people that were rioting, yes, you know, there was like lumpen, proletarian, like people that are unemployed, but, but also a lot of people that are working class and have jobs, you know, that are, you know, probably for the, my guests would be for the most part involved in like retail and like service jobs. 
so you know th so then the question is like we're talking specifically about jobs that are essential you know like in the uh you know i mean that that can go all over the place but you know like from like sanitation workers you know to people that are involved in manufacturing and agriculture you know that that's very different from people that you know work in a grocery store or like you know a store that gets looted and i think you know like what what we saw like a lot of the the people that do have jobs were were engaging in tactics that weren't so much about uh taking over their workplaces but actually just like looting and being part of the destruction of of the workplace you know but but that means something very different from you know someone who has a job like yeah like in a, a nuclear power plant you know or in a Homer Simpson, yeah. for example. A vineyard or something, yeah. <laughs> Famed white accomplice, Homer Simpson. <laughs> we got to organize Homer Simpson. <laughs> you start no, with his like, kids, they're rabble-rousers. This, but unironically. <laughs> We're going to stop the steal, Marge. <laughs> this is terrible, Homer, sorry. Oh I'll give it a try. That's all right, you can work on it. Let's... I mean, I don't know if we have a positive answer right away because I think they, they end up falling back into the same strategies that people have kept trying and then keep producing pretty meager results. What we can do is point out the limits of this movement, which I think Arturo is doing right. There's the, the, it's not translating necessarily into workplace strikes, the riots, the way the 1967-68 riots, if you look at this great book called Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, right? It shows kind of the dynamism of the riot to strike um, dynamic that occurred in Detroit. And it's unclear if that will occur. And part of it is maybe kind of simple that, yeah, as Arturo said, there's the rioters, if they're in service sector jobs that people feel don't give them a lot of power, that they hate and don't want to take over or see as part of their main identity, then, you know, you what in, in our head, what would sometimes call like the compositional limit. It's just like the composition of who is fighting really hard is very different right now from the people who are working um, in the nuclear power plant like Homer Simpson and other places. And that's a real problem that we should think that we should not just throw old strategies on to try to solve that problem, but think about how to solve that problem based on the fact that it's a new moment, a new period in U.S. capitalism, different from the 1960s or 1930s, and it's going to require something else. And just be honest. I think sometimes it's really important to be just honest and say, we don't know right now. We need to figure it out. And to some extent, the proletariat itself will have to teach us how to do it. And just the way the proletariat taught us what revolutionary abolition was, right? We'd basically forgotten in the United States what it, uh, what it was other than Harriet Tubman and John Brown uh, and those guys. But, you know, people invoke them, but no one does the practice of those people until we saw the Black and multiracial proletariat teach us once again what actual abolition is in contrast to, in my opinion, all the defund and kind of more nice and, you know, safe forms of abolition that exist right now. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the proletariat. You know, um, I was actually going to ask about defund because this is something that I've been involved with a little bit uh, through my work in DSA and a lot of abolitionist groups and organizations see defund as sort of a non-reformist reform, right? Like it is a reform, but it's done in the mold of looking forward to an abolitionist horizon. So... Sorry, I'm just finding it. Um, 
So yeah, it's something that we see that we think we need to do in order to to achieve any of our any of our other goals, right? Because it's a way to open up conversations about police and prison abolition with people who previously were not on board with any of it and kind of slow walk them to that place, get them thinking critically about the role that police and prisons actually serve under capitalism. Um, Plus the idea is by decreasing the cops power, the cops numbers, taking away some of their tactical gear and having fewer proletarians in jail. um, The idea is that that will help strengthen our position for all of these other fights to come. So uh, I guess I want to dig into your critique of that a little bit. Do you think that it's still worth trying or, uh, or is anything short of, you know, full revolution a fool's errand Carol, you want to go first hmm. yeah um i mean yeah i mean I, I i think we need to be careful about not being like too sectarian and like abstract um in our dismissal of defund because it is you know it's it's the it's a widespread become very popular sentiment and you know we need to be willing to engage with that um you know, but at the same time, you know, like be critical of this like reformist strategy of essentially lobbying the state, you know, and, and trying to like basically form an alliance through negotiating with the state. So it, that's, you know, that's the paradox that, that, that we're confronted with when we engage with that kind of demand or we might call reformist, uh, I mean, a uh, non-reformist reform or but uh, I, I think it is important. Like we need to be critical of the limitations of that as well. Um, in, a, yeah. in an effort not to be sectarian, I yeah. will not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's well said, Arturo. <laughs> but, you know, it's like at the same time, there's like, you know, considerable layers of the proletariat that are also extremely insurrectionary and are not interested in reforming or defunding the police and are extremely skeptical and have like very few illusions about that being even possible. So, you know, so the the question is almost like we're, we're engaging with different like layers of the class and different politics within the class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe these could be parallel projects. I don't know. I mean, I'm used to arguing with libs who are like, well, why do you want to defund the police? We want to reform them and just make them better, you know, repurpose this institution whose entire purpose was to keep people oppressed and somehow make them keep people safe. So I guess I'm used to arguing with people to my right on this question. So maybe maybe it's fun to be the the reactionary for once. I don't know. <laughs> I guess what I'll, I'll, in, in an effort to be... Uh just not a crazy person. What I'd like to say is, you know, what I think is interesting is what you saw with our, in our head, what we call revolutionary abolition is proletarians got to participate. It was a proletarian way of dealing with the cops. And then once you get into defund, oftentimes it turns into legislation, lawyers, uh, 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 policymakers, and eventually, right, the people who are going to vote in city hall and Congress and all that stuff. And proletarians have nothing to do there, right? You have to have uh, a JD to speak the language oftentimes to get to that level, especially when it's about legislation and stuff or, or degrees, which lots of proletarians obviously don't. So it really does concern me, like, 
what are the forms of activity which the proletariat can do and what are the forms of activity that they can't do? And I think that's important. And it's also, I think, interesting to, inter interesting to think about that the, it's the proletarian form of activity is it's kind of like a collective responsibility, right? Um, whereas I think defund kind of is you're subcontracting that responsibility to some other body, right? The state in this case. And I think that's worrying on a lot of levels because what we're, if everyone talks about empowerment, right? This, this funny word, we want to empower oppressed people, empower the proletariat. Well, in my head, the most, the, if we want to use that language, it's not a language I use, but if people want to use that language, the ultimate way of empowering people is letting them figuring out collectively how they have to do those tasks. And the proletariat, I, you know, the, I think a while ago, you know, you all asked, I don't think it was recording, what was the significance of this uprising? The significance was that the proletariat taught us how to live. It taught us how to live because we don't know how to live, uh, right? And, and the proletariat on a national scale showed us what it means to be anti-police uh, for the redistribution of wealth and and it I can't ever to me like I, that that's that is the comp the compass that I think Arturo and I try to like use like we we don't have many models of how to live in this world well to be know? specific about how your writing looks at uh what the proletariat is doing or or what tactics they are employing um on a nationwide scale you wrote an article for Metamute called Cars, Riots, and Black Liberation. And I'll just read uh, one paragraph from it. While sitting in a traffic jam waiting for the red light to turn green, a car breaks whatever is left of the law and speeds away. Time and speed do not obey red, yellow, or green here. There is no ordinary traffic jam. It is the traffic jam of black liberation, where looting by car is the art form developed in response to the murder of Walter Wallace Jr. by the Philadelphia police. So uh, why, why did you choose to write about looting caravans and, and what do you see as the significance of that? Um, I mean, yeah, I'll just say real quick, like uh, this was probably one of the most like impressive tactical innovations that we observed to come out of this whole year. Um, and I mean, it wasn't just in Philly, you know, like it, it was happening in Louisville, you know, it was, it was happening in a, uh, Rockford, Illinois, you know, in like all kinds of cities. Um, and in general, it's part of the, the, uh, the innovations that, 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 uh, the proletariat in motion in action against class society was, was throwing up. I mean, people would be rioting in one place, the cops would come, they would, they would spread the rioting and looting throughout the city. And, the use of cars and the formation of caravans was, was like a huge part of just like escalating the, the rebellion, but also uh, outmaneuvering the police in the streets. So yeah, that's like, this is like a, probably like one of the best examples of what Shimon was just talking about in terms of the, the ways that the, the, the proletariat has developed these, these tactics and strategies um, you know, completely autonomously of any state or party or leftist subculture. Um, and that's what we're really trying to focus on, you know, with these texts make sense of. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of cachet and talk and the movement and in the Academy 
about the black radical tradition. And to my dying breath, what I will say the black radical tradition is, is it's treason, it's insurrection, um, it's revolution, it's illegality, it's armed struggle, it's illegal strikes, it's riots. That is the core of the black radical tradition. Because a lot of times it's been made into, um, I would argue, many safe and accommodationist set of politics, which then lots of people can participate in um, and that do almost nothing um, for the liberation of black people, let alone other proletarians. And I think it is... I, I, I'm, uh, my eyes are wide open by the level of illegality and violence and bravery and courage that many young black proletarians took. And what that showed to us was, a, 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 it, it returned us to the concept of the black radical tradition in the sense of black Jacobins and the Haitian revolution. That a lot of people, you know, I'm not, I'm a non-black person. We talk about solidarity with black people and solidarity means risk. It means immense risk, you know, and we got to put politics back at the level of people have to take risks, no freedom, no Nothing will change. And the, and the, and the, and this, the last summer, it's, been, it's now last summer, reminded us of the importance of illegality um, in the Black radical tradition and in struggle. And I think, you know, when you look at the Philly struggles, we, the, we, we, what Artur and I notice is the left doesn't play a big role in any of these struggles, you know. Maybe the anarchists, you know. Um, have 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 held the have held the held the line, uh, you know. God bless anarchists in that sense. Um, but overall, it's a pretty embarrassing situation for who the left thinks it is and what the proletariat is doing. You know, um, I, I'm 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 I don't want to say I'm stunned because it's something we've been thinking about for decades and you know uh, fighting many leftists. I remember fighting the now defunct ISO for every little tooth and nail of struggle. Um, I guess you won that but, fight. <laughs> Shaman won ISO zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they're gone. I'm still alive. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and it just, and it's scary. You know, it, it should be terrifying. You know, I, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure how I feel about Afro-pessimism anymore after the riots. Um, but I think Frank Wilderson is right. Black liberation in many ways means the end of the world. And now we have to grapple with what the hell does the end of the world look like? Um, and I think it's because it's such a monumental uh, struggle to overturn the type of racism, anti-blackness that black people face. It does look like the end. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a crazy person. I started reading slaveholder accounts of what the Haitian Revolution looks like. And it is true. For them, it did look like the end of the world. When you read their accounts, it looks like apocalypse. Doom is upon their doorsteps. And, you know, I think what black liberation does is it, it brings us to the edge. And as Frank Wilderson says, it will scare the living crap out of revolutionaries as well. And we, I think for those of us who call ourselves partisans of black liberation, we have to stare into that abyss or otherwise, you know, we can be Instagram partisans and post pictures of I'm in solidarity with black people and have our little cute t-shirts. And, you know, I don't, I don't do any of that garbage. Uh, people want to do it. That's great. Um, but for people who, for those of us who are like, Everyone on this planet, including black people, need to have food, a better life. No, you know, no police. Um, Instagram posts ain't going to do shit, you know. No, I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, 
And yeah, I agree. It is terrifying. And any any uh, pro-revolutionary leftist who's like really excited to, you know, fight the cops or put themselves in danger or whatever is, you know, someone I don't really trust because they seem kind of crazy. Um, at the same time, uh, there is also a need for base building work. There's also a need for organizing, right? Which is maybe a third thing in between this kind of violent confrontation um, that we're talking about and the kind of, you know, recuperation that we all want to avoid, right? Because nothing is totally spontaneous. Um, people agree to meet up in a place and a time um, where you're talking about the car looting, like that obviously requires actual like a lot of organizing and planning on the part of people who you know figure out where they're going to go where they're going to go next they got to stick together etc cetera, etc cetera. so like what kinds of organizational film forms and base building work do you think uh need to be paired with this kind of uh insurrectionary eruption to make it more uh more effective, or maybe that's a leading question. I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about um, base building lately, the idea of, you know, the mole under the ground, like maybe the fighting has died down for now, but things are still happening. And um, I, I kind of belong to a tendency in DSA that emphasizes um, base building, training Marxist cadre, um, so that people are more prepared the next time something like this happens. Um. I think our, our general orientation is not necessarily so much um, what are the things that, you know, leftist organizational forms are doing that, you know, can be paired with the self-activity of the proletariat, you know, as if we're like, you know, more strategic and this is in the self-activity of the proletariat is like this you know, mass, you know, to be developed by us. I, I think for us, it, it's very much like, look, let's look at the ways, the tactics, the strategies, the organizational forms that are imminent to the actual concrete struggle of the proletariat in these uprisings. So like, yeah, like, you know, for us, the looting does require a certain level of organizational sophistication. So our, our whole approach to organizing and building networks and relationships and rooting ourselves in certain communities and workplaces, all of it needs to be derived from that starting point, which is the revolutionary self-activity of the class. So that, that's how I think about it, you know, and this summer has created these situations where we've met a lot of people, you know, and, and we've come together around very kind of like concrete pragmatic actions and tactics and so from, so so when i think about organizing it's it's you know it's in that kind of way in terms of how do we yeah like how do we organize with people in these kind of situations not so much are we you know how are we going to get them to like join our leftist like formal organization and that's going to turn them into like disciplined militants or something because if anything to me the groups that are doing that that i've seen uh, they're yeah, like they're they're in the way, like they're they're blocking. You know, like I, I even saw situations where like people in West Philly were fighting, like like black militants from West Philly were fighting with uh, PSL people, uh, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Oh boy, you know that went in there, you know, to organize people and lead them, you know, in the more like strategic, disciplined direction. But really, it was just 
you know, the, the, the thing that you see happens, you know, all the time that I think we're very critical of that, you know, CLR James, especially, or like people like Bordiga, we're like very critical of, which is that the left, you know, the leftist organizer class be actually becomes, you know, this mediating force yeah. that actually, you know, uh, blocks the, like the, the revolutionary potential of, yeah. of Period. And, you know, people weren't having it, you know, and, and yeah, I don't think people are going to have it. Like if you're going to try to go, go in there with like the kind of like standard activist approach that we've all learned, you know, that we've all come out of. So we're trying to be like really like, you know, self-critical in terms of all of that. Yeah, yeah I think I had a, a come yeah. to Jesus moment maybe <clears throat> when I saw just how impressive some of these actions were. Like they burned down a police precinct in Minneapolis, or maybe it was an agent provocateur. I've seen reports of it, but they did a lot of shit like that. Right. And I was like, man, these people are pissed off. They're pissed off at the cops. They're pissed off at the capitalist system and they're brave. They're mad and they're brave. And I don't think that many of these people are members of DSA. <laughs> and like, it's a ridiculous thing to even ask myself at this point in time, like, how do we get these people in our, you know, for forming socialist party or whatever you want to call it. And in that moment, I was like, man, maybe, maybe DSA doesn't have a role to play in this stuff. Maybe if I want to participate at all, I need to go somewhere else to do it. I don't know. Let's, let's talk about the, the possibilities and the limitations that arise um, from having, as you said, very importantly, a uh, multiracial proletarian rebellion, like we saw this last year. In uh, your piece, Return of John Brown, uh, you started it by specifically addressing the concerns of uh, BIPOC comrades about the roles of uh, white militants within this rebellion. I mean, this is obviously a super fraught topic in American politics in general, and uh, no less so on the pro-revolutionary left. So you, you cite, as, as you're addressing, as you're intervening here, you cite, you cite a few um, misgivings uh, that BIPOC comrades might have that to focus on the white proletariat and its relationship to this is, uh, is pointless. We shouldn't be paying attention to them. That uh, by including uh, these people within the, the movement, uh, it's going to whitewash uh, essentially the larger, the, 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 the most militant aspects of the struggle. And then also by POC radicals who are, uh, who basically think that the white proletariat is completely lost to uh, settler colonialism, uh, like a uh, sort of Jay Sakai settlers type analysis. Um, why did you, why do you reject those? Why do you think there's limitations uh, to understanding this multiracial struggle this way? And then what was your argument uh, out of that? Go ahead, Shimon. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of BIPOC comrades in my day. And the question I always ask them is considering that as of now, you know, um, BIPOCs are still a minority in the so-called United States. How do we have a, a revolution? And even if we if we did, um, what do we do with you know the over fifty odd percent, sixty percent of, of white people? Do you ship them back to Europe? Do you kill them all? Do you put them in concentration camps? I mean, these are all pretty disastrous ideas, you know. And I try to use the impact of if we don't have a positive strategy, you better be willing 
to kill 60% of the U.S. population. And so far, most BIPOC people back down because once the, I, I try to use that as aggressively as possible to be like, if you don't have a, a cache of guns with a bunch of, uh, of, of bullets ready to kill white babies, you're just, you, you're angry about white people. I'm pissed about, off about white people and, and white supremacy, but there's a difference between being angry about white supremacy and the fact that we need a strategy, not to mention an ethics, right? I think I'm a big partisan of the fact that the black radical tradition and the and the and the towering giants of the tradition, like Franz Fanon uh, and Celar James, were not into genocide. They did not think revolution was a genocidal act. In fact, they were very hostile to that. And so we need to keep that at our forefront. There's an ethical dimension and there's a strategic dimension. So as we realize that this summer's uprising was not just a black proletarian uprising, but an uprising of white proletarians and young people. People. And then we saw Seattle, Minneapolis, and Portland, right? We were like, whoa, these are cities that are have minority Black populations, minority BIPOC populations. And yet, they're some of the most dynamic cities in the United, so-called United States. So we had to have some kind of accounting, you know? And then, of course, you had uh, Michael Reinhold, I think I'm saying his name right, uh, 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 murdered, uh, right, by the state. Uh, then you had Kenosha, right? Uh, so we, we saw that there were uh, white proletarians, white militants, white race traders who are willing to go the distance. And so you couldn't have just a bland analysis that, oh, it's all whiteies that's to blame. And this is just a black proletarian rebellion. You had to change, uh, you, had to, you had to change your analysis. So we wanted to write a piece that addressed the fact that you had majority white cities that were uprising. And then you, we saw quite a few number of white people pay the ultimate price, which was giving up their lives in the cause of black liberation. And, you know, we, we follow the proletariat. And once that happened, we were like, we got to write this essay and we don't care what other, you know, comrades have to say about that. You know, it's like you, you, you got to see what's happening in front of you, right? We have our theories of what the white proletariat is, and it was challenged by the uprising. So you have to account for it. Yeah. Yeah. You also write very convincingly that um, it is, you know, not only possible, but hopefully or it's hopefully important and possible to win over some uh, racist white proletarians to the side of, you know, multiracial anti-capitalist struggle in order to win just because there are so many of them, right? Like we, if you look at who voted for Trump, um, the petty bourgeoisie is the primary social base, but you know, almost half of the people who voted for Trump were working class by one metric or another, um, which is obviously very concerning. There are a lot of people who are still very invested in whiteness and um, will fight to defend it. So how do you propose to uh, change the hearts and minds of these folks when uh, racism is so deeply, deeply embedded in our society? Um, And are there any lessons that we can draw from how similar struggles have played out in history? I don't know. I mean, just from my personal experience, like it's just, it's a very complicated and difficult process, but like there's people that I've been in like physical altercations with who were white nationalists 
who now are like some of the most militant Antifa like comrades that I know. You know, I mean, it's not like a huge amount of people, but like there's there's people that I know that used to be white nationalists and now are like extremely dedicated anti-racist militants. So I, I know it's possible, you know, but it, it's also, you know, that's not a thing that's just going to happen overnight and there is no easy formula for it. And, you know, part of it might require, uh, you know, fighting these people sometimes <laughs> and then talking to them afterwards. Um but I mean, on a, you know, and that's, yeah, that's not for everybody, um, you know, but it, like there's, like we mentioned in, in the piece, but there's this project, the One People's Project run by this guy, Daryl Lamont Jenkins. And he's he's done that with a bunch of like people that used to be white nationalists and help them like get out of that, um, you know, but at the same time, he's like a militant anti-fascist that is like willing to fight too. Um and but I mean, in, in terms of history, I don't know, like, you know, Shaman and I, we always, you know, like talk about like the Haitian Revolution or the Algerian Revolution or, you know, like the Civil War, the U.S. Civil War, like the people that were fighting in the war and even fighting with black soldiers. These weren't necessarily anti-racist white people, you know, that were um, but through the process of struggle and fighting, you know, the people's consciousness changes you know so at at a certain level it's almost like activity precedes consciousness in a way um more than the other way around is how i would approach it no i think that makes a whole lot of sense because most people don't change their minds based on you know you arguing with them right people change their minds in the course of struggle and in the course of experience right no, it's only by yelling at people on Twitter. It's the only way you can educate <laughs> and, people. And by calling them dumb and educated yes. and uh, deplorable, that's yep. how you change people's minds. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that's that we've talked to educate you. We've talked about a, a bit and maybe mused about is is that if if it's possible that since in the George Floyd uprising you saw such a massive participation by white people, that is there a, a possibility that more and more white people understand that the the wages of whiteness, the uh, the white skin privilege that has so long um, led white people to believe that they had there was an incentive in this racial hierarchy, is it possible that that is breaking down and uh, a, a new generation of white people perhaps don't believe in that anymore and are beginning to understand that their fate and the fate of all humanity is linked? to black people. I think that's exactly it, right? We can understand the, the, the white proletarians who came out for the uprising as recognizing that and making that exact connection, Andy. And I think we can try to understand, you know, the, 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 the people who are coming out for Trump and the rallies trying to preserve their whiteness to some degree. Like they also recognize that it's under attack and things have degraded in the United States, right? They might even have to some degree a common enough analysis at times, but their reactions, their political reaction is just fundamentally different, right? They're like trying to reaffirm a certain type of whiteness in this world and see that as the solution to the crisis of neoliberalism and joblessness and lack of healthcare. So I think we can like divide on one level, um, the two movements and how they are reacting to whiteness and black struggles, you know, and, and the positionality or where white people are in relationship 
to black liberation. Right. So I, I definitely see it that way. Yeah. So uh, in your piece on the black counterinsurgency, um, you talk about the role played by the black middle class NGOs and academia, as well as elected officials in putting down the more radical parts of the uprising, pretending it was largely peaceful. Most of the protesters were good, AKA nonviolent. The violent ones were just a few bad apples, et cetera. Or outside um, agitators. Uh, yes, that too. Uh, also, you write, you found that it was more militant in places without a strong black middle class and political class in many cases. Um, so how does the left, how do us leftist militants push back against this uh, phenomenon of recuperation and counterinsurgency, especially considering that the left, however you want to describe it, is still a majority white grouping as it currently stands. You can maybe start if you'd like by just talking about this dynamic of black counterinsurgency, what you saw out there and uh, what you took from it. Sure. You know, one of the things that ended up happening is I ended up doing quite a bit of traveling to study the different and, and stuff like that, study the different protests and, and, and the riots that were going on to make sense of it. So at times it might not always be clear, but some of the, a lot of the stuff that's being written is kind of, it's literally like we're, we're watching it with our eyes and then we're like, how the hell do we explain it? And it's not just in one city, but it's in multiple cities. Right. Um, so that really dr drove that dynamic. Like I remember one time I was in New York city and I was in this big March and you know, what happened was there was this uh, black dude protester with a megaphone and he was like, all right, let's take a kneel with the cops. And you know, I, I don't, I don't play that game. So I started yelling like a madman. I mean, just, I went nuts. Like that's our you know, fuck this. we're never going <laughs> to kneel with the cops. The cops kill. Like I just went insane. And it was really confusing. Cause you know, people were like, all right, this other dude who's clearly not white, but he's clearly probably not black. It's like, you know, he's gone nuts saying how we should kneel, but you know, people didn't kneel. And I started like noticing that kind of dynamic happening in other places again and again. And then you have to make sense of what the hell is happening because there's no way that I think, you know, if a white protester would have said, all right, let's kneel with the cops. I think that would have been highly unlikely. Hence, a white counterinsurgency would have been pretty ineffective, right? So it's not an accident, just to kind of come to the conclusion of what that piece was trying to say, it's not an accident that a Black-led uprising needed a Black-led counterinsurgency, right? Uh, which shows, you know, there's a lot of discussion of intersectionality and that without a class analysis as well, and sometimes, you know, like depending on who you are, class isn't seen as always that important in the world. But if you don't have a class analysis in this case, you cannot understand that, you know, the black community, I think everyone should know by now is not hegemonic, not only in its political thought, not only in how it votes, if that's your cup of tea, but also in its economic position under capitalism. And that in the last 40 years, one of the things that civil rights and black power did was it created enough room for a black middle class to emerge. And on one hand, you know, like, you know, I, I want everyone to be as successful as they can on one level, but on another level, the political result of that has been that masses of black proletarians have been left behind under capitalism and the black middle class as a social force, right, does what 
every other middle class does. And if people aren't sure what it does, they should, you know, if you want to be more relaxed about it, you should watch, you know, like watch the first five. I've been rewatching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's an amazing, <laughs> five. I was, I was watched the fifth episode. It's amazing. Phil, Uncle Phil is like, you know, he heard Malcolm X speak. He, he was, he, he implies that he was in the Watts riot, you know? So this guy is clearly, their show is signaling. He is not an Uncle Tom, you know what I mean? But at the same time, he's, he's a lawyer and then he's becomes a judge down the road uh, in I don't know what season and so it's spoiler sh- alert <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. <laughs> yeah. um, what it shows you is like the unique trajectory of the relationship between civil rights, black power, the emergence of the middle class. And then what is, you know, what's a judge going to do? It's going to send kids to jail. What, what, you know, what, what do judges do? You know, I don't believe in good judges, bad judges, judges do certain things and that's what they do. So that's, you know, if, if folks aren't aware of this class dimension that has emerged. I mean, it's been around for a long time, even in the sixties, black revolutionaries were talking and dealing with it. Um, but if you haven't figured it out, you know, it's, it's kind of late in the game. So people should definitely pay attention to this class difference. And in some ways it even goes before the sixties, it goes back to the Haitian revolution. There is a battle that the black proletariat has to fight, not only against white racists, but against black middle class people. And we, and we've seen that I've seen, I've seen protests where black middle class organizers basically tell black proletarians to get the fuck out. I've seen it with my own eyes. Now they don't say it in exactly those words. There's a lot of different ways that people tell proletarians, you are not welcome here. Right. Um, don't, don't, don't swear. Uh, don't say fuck you to the cops. Don't antagonize the cops. Back the fuck up. Right. All these coded words that might seem innocent to, I don't know, somebody, I don't know who, but to somebody, it might seem innocent um, are ways that the black middle class and the black NGO class disciplines um, black proletarians. And it's very common, very, very common. I feel like I'm rambling a lot. No, no, you did great. And I, I think a uh, class analysis of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Bel- while it was um, uh, unexpected, I think is actually might be the highlight of this episode. We might awesome. be able to do an entire other episode just on that. Yeah, but how does Urkel filter into all this? Yeah. <laughs> well, we know Mr. Winslow's a cop because he always plays yeah. a cop in like Die Hard and other movies. Oh, yeah. my God. That's why he keeps breaking the table. <laughs> Does he keep breaking the table? Is that his thing? <laughs> yeah, Urkel goes in and, and accidentally breaks the cop's table. I think we all know what's actually going on. Antifa. <laughs> exactly. Urkel is Antifa. You heard, you heard yeah. it here first. He's turning over the tables mm-hmm. in the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> turning the tables on the police. I don't know. So, yeah, how do we avoid that kind of recuperation? I mean, I guess it kind of feels like there's nothing that I could do as a white leftist and I should probably leave it to, you know, my black and brown comrades to push back against that kind of recuperation. No, cause I'm, I'm not trying to get called a racist by Joanne Reed or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what we can do though is like support our like black comrades and like, you know, be uncompromising in that support for, you know, them and the, you know, the actions and tactics that are going to, you know, displace the middle class. I feel like that's all we can really do. But it's also an emergent dynamic, right? Because it's not two different groups with two different class character characteristics that are deciding to go in there and do these things. It's uh, it's actually a conflict 
that right. uh, works itself out in the course of struggle. Right. Like we're not seeing separate like racial groups on the streets. We'll, we're seeing, you know, groups, a crowd that is entirely multiracial, you know, uh, you know, engaging in, in these riot tactics. And I'll, I'll add maybe, you know, I'm out of line and I'm a wacko, but my take is white comrades should always be looking to out organize um, to strategically discombobulate. Uh, that's a weird way of saying that, but, you know, <laughs> you know to basically ruin uh, everything that is about the black middle class in these protests. Like, you know, sometimes luckily now we all get to wear ski masks so no one can call you out if someone says you're a racist. It's in the right. I mean, if, if you're if you're challenging the black middle class in the effort to open up more space for the proletariat. Yeah. My line is fuck the black middle class. You know what I mean? And, and the way fuck the Uncle black Phil. middle, middle class. Oh, sorry. I said, fuck uncle Phil. Yeah. Fuck. I mean, at the end of the day, it is fuck uncle Phil. Like, I mean, he's, a, you know, he's a hilarious dude and <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't make me laugh, but you, know, you got to draw the class line eventually. So, <laughs> you know, it is true. Fuck uncle Phil. So I think like one of the lessons from the summer's uprising is like, white comrades certainly need to work in alliance or solidarity with black comrades. But one of the contradictions that emerged was that the, that, that the left was very segregated and, and those who were out in the street, if in the, in terms of the left found themselves without enough black comrades, which you, you, we can make comments about what kind of organizing or left building were we doing before the uprising? What we you know, how do we change that? Cause we, we certainly need more black comrades to challenge the black middle class. But if you don't have them, you, I, I would argue we still got to do it. Um, I mean, we can do it some nuance and grace, but I've seen too many protests where people came to fight and some whack old Black Panther or some whack old NGO person or young NGO person basically told crowds of people dressed in in protest gear from head to toe, homemade protest gear. I've seen black women with homemade gas masks and leaf blowers. And then you have um, um, black older Black Panther members telling the crowd not to antagonize the cops. And I've seen whole crowds of black young kids instantly leave once they knew that they were going to not be able to do anything, just go home. And so we saw I'm that like, here in New York. I saw yeah, it a yeah, couple I've times. I've seen it all over the country. So if anar if white anarchism means anything in this country, it's it has to reassert itself in the face of black of the black middle class and fight and and try to create an alliance with the black proletariat in those scenes where you have former radicals from the so-called radicals from the 60s or new NGO kids who try to, you know, do the usual peace police shit. And it's going to be ugly. It's going to be ugly. I mean, I've been in some of those fights and it gets nasty, but I don't know, you know, and, 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 and there's a, that's a longer conversation, but I, I think my general framework is that. And my general framework is, you know, we do need, you know, I think Jamie asked a while ago, like, what should we do? I do think we need to like, we need to door knock a little bit and meet the kids. There is a new left that has been formed in this country. And, you know, in my head, it's the George Floyd left. And this left is what the people who participate. We've met women, black women who spent the entire summer driving from rebellion to rebellion, living out of their cars. Right. And, and, 
we need to make sure that those black women don't end up in some bullshit NGO in the Democratic Party, but end up as revolutionaries, as either ultra-left communists or anarchists, and not this bullshit, all these other type of politics, in my opinion, out there. Um, otherwise, we will continue to face the crisis of there's a lot of black counterinsurgency and there's a lot of white kids, um, you know, a white radical kids who can't who, who struggle stand, standing up to the black middle class, um, which isn't to say... You know, I mean, and then and that and and then the, the white radical kids are waiting for the black proletariat to kind of bust open the door and create an opening. Right. So, yeah, it's it's a complicated mess. You know, it's a complicated mess. And there's the whole story of, you know, and you, you all should definitely have black revolutionaries on the show to get kind of their perspective on how they've navigated this question you know, because uh, there are, you know, you all know black revolutionaries and and so on and so forth, how they've navigated this question with the black middle class, white comrades, because there's there's been a lot of discussion among black comrades of how to do that. And for sophisticated or complicated reasons, it played out the way it did this summer. But I think that's one of the major weaknesses of, of this summer is that we just yeah. didn't have enough black comrades on our side to to cuss out the black NGOs, you know, and as we needed. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, embedded in a lot of questions that I ask myself lately, is just like, how do I be good and not bad? <laughs> like, I am a white person, which is already kind of bad. Uh, and like, how do I how do I help and not should, have people be mad at me? Because I hate up, it when people are mad at me. You should pick up your Bible. <laughs> if you want to be good, pick up your Bible. Yeah, All three but, volumes of the Bible. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll do that after we're done recording today and after I loot a Starbucks. But um, a Bible okay. study group? Is that what's happening? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, are, we have transitioned now. This is a transitionary moment in the podcast. Yeah, this is a pious, uh, a, a pious liberation theology podcast now. We something trad, like that. I don't we're, know. we're trad uh, libertarian uh, uh, theologists now. Um, yeah, term. too bad the Bruneggs already have a podcast or maybe we'd be getting somewhere with that. Um, anyway, <laughs> so, OK, I got to ask uh, one or two devil's advocate questions because, you know, there there's been some discourse on the left. There's been some critiques of uh, you guys's work and other work like it. So <laughs> what would you say to those who believe that um, because this specific kind of anti-state communist revolution is not the conscious intention of most of the people doing protests and riots and looting. Um, it's just us kind of projecting our wants onto the situation and maybe even romanticizing the black proletariat as an already revolutionary subject in a way that's not necessarily true. Mm. You want to go first, Arturo? Um, I mean, I would just say I disagree. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, to me, what happened was extremely revolutionary, uh, unparalleled in probably any of our lifetimes. And if we don't make sense of it and really integrate what it means, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to have a strategy and a vision of revolution that works, that that's going to be effective. Uh I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would just, uh, if people don't think what happened was revolutionary, then I, I don't know what, I, what to say, really. I mean, I, I see the revolutionary potential in it, but maybe it's harder to draw the line to like the specific type of uh, anti-state uh, communist revolution that 
you and I are talking about, right? But maybe mm-hmm. you don't have to have that consciously in the minds of everyone who's doing it for there to be a lot of overlap between the two, maybe? Yeah, I, I guess I, I would just say that's kind of a unfair caricature. I mean, because we're not saying that everybody is an anti-state communist <laughs> that's rioting you know, or looting. Uh, I mean, we certainly are. But uh, well, that's two. That's a good. That's a good start. Yeah. <laughs> we know there's two people in the. In the <laughs> I think you got so some friends on point. this side of the aisle too. Yeah. Okay. We got three. Cool. <laughs> so here's our another. Numbers, here's our numbers a, just grew by fifty percent. Yes. Here's another uh, devil's advocate question. Maybe this will help to <laughs> focus it a little more. Uh, as we saw just this last year, as it currently stands, we and I mean that broadly uh, can't even get enough people to vote for a social democrat to win a democratic primary. What makes you think people are going to decide to do something much more difficult and dangerous in the service of much more radical politics? Or is it not such a straight line between what happened with the Democrats and Bernie and the insurrection that we saw? Uh, wait, there have been several, in, or maybe what insurrection? Just uh, the George George Floyd. <laughs> okay, you know it's a post January six. So I don't know what. Oh people God, yeah, yeah. yeah we're, we can. I, I don't think, think maybe that was an insurrection, but I just wanted to be clear. I think we can maybe uh, address that in the bonus when we talk about civil sure. war because you guys have written uh, yeah, on that too. Definitely. <laughs> you know, I think the logic of class struggle, especially extra parliamentary or outside of the state class struggle is just different than the logic of counting votes, you know? Um, And you kind of see that when, you know, for years people wanted uh, to challenge the police through whatever, I mean, for years the state was expanding police powers. Um, But in a matter of a week, you know, there were all these cop cars burned, a police station taken down uh, for many radicals and rioters or you know proletarians in the country the standard became we have to burn down police stations whether we're in atlanta or new york uh seattle portland you know like all of a sudden that became an a feasible imagination so the calculus the the curve of class struggle is really radically different than um, the vote strategy, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a comparing algebra to calculus in my head, not to insult uh, people who do vote and all those things. But I think, right, revolutionary politics is calculus. And then voting is, uh, I don't know, multiplication or, some, <laughs> or addition or something like that. It's just a quality. It's a qualitatively different phenomenon. Time bends when you're involved in struggles. Um, identities bend and break when you're involved in struggle. All the normal functionings of society start to melt down. It's like to me it's the equivalent of when you're around a black hole all the normal things that we're used to about time and st- space become they become radically different and so if you if for people who've never experienced that you it might be really hard to imagine how is it that we can't even get bernie to be president or you know so on and so on and yet these nutballs are talking about a communist or a black liberation horizon it's because once you've once you've experienced the gravity of being around a black hole or a riot or, you know, a powerful strike. I mean, an actual strike, not the, the, the charade of what we know as strikes that happen today. Um, but when you're around those things, you realize how people can change quickly, how the possibilities of what you thought 
can just radically shift in a matter of hours, right? The way the burning of the police station did, the way, you know, January 6th, all of a sudden now, every state capital in the country is on alert that they might be taken over. And not only is that an alert for the right, right, alert uh, regarding the right, but now the left knows that too, that, oh, we can do things that we never thought we could do before. Right. And voting, in my mind, just doesn't work that way, because voting generally is you go in the booth, you, you punch your hole. I, I don't know how people vote. I've never voted. So <laughs> what do people do when they get in the booth? Like how they, clap their hands. <laughs> you know, they, they clap their hands, they kumbaya, whatever the hell they do. <laughs> right. Yeah, but the, 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 the politics we're interested in is you have to do it. I don't want to sound like a Republican of individual self-responsibility, mm-hmm. obviously collective, but the collective responsibility of the proletariat, very different experience. So that's how I understand um, this, this maybe seemingly contradiction of we can't get Bernie or other socialists in office. And yet we believe communism is a possibility. And the last reason I think is a possibility is, is we are going, I believe what we saw in Minneapolis is nothing, is absolute, it is a tea party. It is a polite affair. Uh, a, it, is, it is patty cake. I don't know what the hell you want, tic-tac-toe compared to what is coming uh, in the upcoming years. Um, and Minneapolis is, we will not even remember Minneapolis three years from now. Because Damn. Yeah, yeah. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> that, that's what I can say. So the, the, the curve of struggle is going to accelerate exponentially. Um, and Minneapolis will seem like, wow, that was so tame, so mild. What were we thinking? We were, we were, we were not brave. We will look back at Minneapolis and say we could have done much more. Damn, you're a very good motivational speaker. I'm going to bring you around some of my comrades next time they need help. Um, That's that- what we should prepare for. That is what is coming. <laughs> Otherwise, we will be the enemy of the revolution. And many people who thought they're revolutionaries end up being the enemies of the revolution. You don't want to be on that side. <laughs> I really, really don't. I'm yeah, always afraid either. that I'm going to be. I'm just afraid I'm going to fuck up all, all the time, everywhere along the line. But that was a very good answer to that question because I, I put that on the sheet because I get asked that question quite a lot. Um, and, and another answer I have for it is I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but a lot of the working class doesn't vote and is never going to. Yeah. So while we we made some progress, I believe, with working class politics through the Bernie Sanders campaign, there's always going to be a hard upper limit on that. And people need to be realistic about it. What happens when you go in the voting booth? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's the coffin of class consciousness. So I presume you just lay down and play dead. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I don't feel great about it. I feel fine about it, whatever. But um, uh, the the guy tried to give me a sticker, like an okay. I voted today sticker when I was on my way out from um, voting in the general. And I turned it down and he just laughed because he knew exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, snap. OK, OK. Like, oh, uh, this this is my like middle third way position. Right. I will vote begrudgingly, but I won't wear the sticker. Yeah, yeah. I it's think, like when you steal an ice cream code from a kid, but you don't want anyone to know. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Something wow. you obviously have some experience with. Um, <laughs> I think this is a good place to end it and go into the bonus section. Um, we can okay. talk about well, civil I was, war. I was going to ask no, one no. more question to Please, wrap it up about no. the future. We're, right? We're already so, like, over time. But I if, feel like we we did a pretty good job, but just like, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen and how do we help these actions along to the degree that any of us can on the ultra left um, in the direction of 
a positive vision, aka communism, without being overly didactic, talking out of turn, whatever, whatever, you know, using the radical building blocks that are already there. I guess you already said what you think is going to happen, but like, how do, how do we, the ultra left to the degree that we can, right? How do we help these riots, these actions along in the direction of a positive vision for the world, which, you know, we usually refer to as communism, although maybe we need a new term for it because that one has a lot of baggage. Super <laughs> capitalism. We'll call it super uh, capitalism. With, without what? Now, somebody online was talking with tried to make uh, turn market socialism into a new term called super capitalism. Oh, well, we definitely don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, how do we help these uh, help these movements along in the direction of um, this positive vision for, let's say, cool world? All right, that's my new word for cool communism world. that yeah. I'm trying to make happen um, that nobody's really picked up yet, but that's okay. Uh, how do we do that without being overly didactic, talking out of turn, doing all the shit? that we have already cautioned ourselves and each other against doing to really work with the radical building blocks that are already there. I think the, like the proletariat, the proletariat doesn't need us. Like all the people that rioted and looted this summer and fall, they, they don't need us. Like it, so, so that's what there's, you know, there's children, there's mothers, there's, people in wheelchairs, you know, people on crutches, like all, all these, just the whole experience of the riot was that there's thousands of people that are willing to fight the cops from all genders, races, ages, abilities. And how do we build relationships with this new layer of, of people, almost like new, new people that have experienced this moment in this historical event? And yeah, how do we, you know, build relationships, you know, that are organizational, political, tactical, based on that, you know, and there's all kinds of other things that we can do. But if we're talking specifically about the uprising, you know, we should have a, a strategy, we should, you know, we, yeah, we should be building relationships. Could, with could people. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know if you and I disagree on this, Arturo, if we're just yeah. saying it a little differently. Mm -hmm. I certainly, you know, I don't like the word need. I agree with you. They don't need us. But I mm -hmm. think like, right, to the extent that revolutionaries, I do think, I think both of us agree revolutionaries can be very useful to movements um, if they are willing to follow the, the, the logic, the, 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 the form of struggle, um, right? Everyone, for example, wants the, the standard Marxist is always complaining, why isn't this a strike? Why isn't this a strike, right? And they poo-poo it. Or another group of Marxists will be like, oh, these are just unemployed kids that are going running amok and they're anti-working class. There's all kinds of um, outdated or silly or even anti-working class, anti-proletarian analysis. And so I do think revolutionaries can provide, like, I think one of the limits of the riot was, you know, it, it wasn't able to spread, right? The riots didn't generalize. And so we need to ask ourselves, why did not the riot generalize into strikes, into occupations? And some of that clearly, I think, had to do with, you know, the population of people outside the riots who are watching, but some of it had to do with the strategic and political choices of the rioters themselves. And, uh, and so we, you know, to the extent that there's weird people like us who think about this theoretically and intellectually and try to explain it to ourselves 
and hopefully other proletarians what's happening, then I think we can make those type of, which I think Arturo and I agree on, and probably all of us agree on, make those type of contributions. And then when we build organizations, I think, you know, I'm very pro-organization. It needs to study what are proletarians doing, right? So that's why we looked at Philadelphia uh, and wrote that piece. And the, the organizations have to gel with proletarian self-activity, right? And so those, we should study, like, here's what the proletarian did, what type of organization will help the proletariat increase its capacity to fight, you know? And so Philadelphia is one case study. So there are, I think, things we can do. It just requires us to get out of the groove that we've gotten into. Because, right, I mean, as activists, we're generally organizing in periods of low struggle. And so you get into this certain groove. But then the proletariat explodes. And to me, I would argue everyone who's organizing, I've done years of organizing. My way of thinking about organizing is if your organizing does not, when the, when the explosion happens, if it cannot interact with the explosion to accelerate it, to deepen it, then you have to ask yourself, what was I doing for the last five or 10 years? organizing, right? So we need to think of our organizing as there will be another Minneapolis squared, Minneapolis times 100. Now we need to be ready for that Minneapolis. So what type of door knocking do I need to do? What kind of relationships do I need to have? Where do I need to be organizing with who and why towards what ends? And to me, the ends is preparing for another assault in the spring and summer of 2021, because the fascists have the winter, right? To me, as we talk about, uh, you know, like we have the summer. It looks like the far right have the winter. So hopefully I'm, I'm praying to the forces of liberation that we will return in the spring. So for all those people who are organizing, when the assault comes once again and the proletariat launches its missiles, where will we be when the missiles are launched? Yeah. So door knocking. <laughs> that was a sweet. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I love when you rant, Shimon. It, like Arturo's like the rant. cool. He's the cool-headed one, and then Shimon just spits that. Uh, I'm just that nuts. This is great. It makes me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I Maybe mean, tabling. Maybe some tabling too. <laughs> I I like to do tabling. I gotta say. Uh, I, I'm gradually coming to terms with the fact that, you know, violent street fights might not be the area where I have the most to contribute, but you know, I can do other things. I can cook really well. I can, um, I, I'm really good at tabling and, and talking to people. So maybe we all have something that we can contribute. Yeah, you're, you're good at podcasting too. So there you like go. Like I, I, I mean, I'm okay at it, but like, uh, just thinking of all the times I've done the black block and i'm always feel like such a poser because i'm like i hope there's no violence but that's uh that's a personal problem i think this is a good place to end it we should probably cut me out talking about myself oh um, no that's great but great these are like real considerations that i think a lot of um a lot of people have because this shit is really scary and i don't want people to think that just because uh they're you know physically uh weak feeble and sickly like myself that there's nothing that can do to help yeah totally i, I think this <laughs> is there is room for everyone in the movement yeah you just have to learn how to use use how we create the movement in a way that advances proletarian struggle right there's room for everyone everyone is not going to be a street fighter yeah right? and that's fine that's absolutely fine and i think what was great about this discussion was how that flame that burned really hot in the spring and summer is obviously kind of low right now 
And uh, it was good to, to hear from Shimon and Arturo kind of give us not just the stakes of what happened, but try to bring back some of that awareness and energy that we had back then because it was an extremely exciting, chaotic, and uh, fruitful time. So, uh, yeah, thanks again, guys, for coming on. And uh, let's head Thank into the me. bonus. Thank you. Yeah. Boys on the stone, screw Zuda putting it down. You know what I'm saying? Big Floyd representing on mine. So red beard going down like this. You know what I'm saying? Say he watched me lay low, never coming high. I'm a real D, staying high till I die. D I E, Watch me raise up in my drop top C. Bouncing down the boulevard, watch me just roll. Young nigga like to just let the dollars fold. Let them all fold. Yeah, I'm talking green. Talking about in the hood, zipping codeine. That's the bar, you can call it serve. I'm a young nigga like to smoke a lot of herb. Watch me go fly on the plane. I'm Mary Jane. Me and the screw Zuda never will be shame. I fame on my name, cause I'm real. Trying to go real. Jumping out of jail on the field, staying down. True South Sider. Watch me crawl over on my motherfucking spiders. Welcome to the ghetto. It's Third Ward, Texas. Boys shopping blades on their motherfucking Lexus. Boys rolling butter. Some coming white. It's that big Floyd throwing tray in the night. I'm just crawling down the sand, trunk like a band. Fucking with a dowry, we not down with the clan, down with black, it can't be no other. Got a damn stallion, and she gon' just smother me a steak. I'm dripped up and draped, a yellow hoe in shape, it's big Floyd on the plate. I'm fucking with the screw, and we still going slow. Pass it to the rash, cause he's never been no hoe.